This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Law Forward, a Madison-based law firm, plans to bring a case to the Wisconsin Supreme Court to challenge the state's voting maps. Executive Director of Law Forward, Nicole Soffer, said, quote, Our gerrymandered maps have consolidated power within a legislative body that is not accountable. The Capitol Times reports that the firm plans follows Tuesday's Supreme Court election, where Janet Protasiewicz won by an 11% point margin. While campaigning, Protasiewicz said she'd welcome a challenge to districting maps and called the maps, quote, rigged. Changes in voting districts normally happen only once a decade after the U.S. Census. Republicans will likely oppose Law Forward's case. Governor Tony Evers has signed a bill into law clarifying a constitutional amendment that allows judges to consider a defendant's past convictions for violent crimes when setting bail. The amendment was passed into law in the statewide election on Tuesday from a pair of ballot questions. The questions received support from two-thirds of voters, reports the Associated Press. The Evers signed bill defines violent crime for the amendment and specifies over 100 offenses as violent crimes. During the signing of the bill, Evers encouraged the legislature to pass further criminal justice changes to increase public safety. Lawmakers are putting forward a bipartisan bill that would make it easier for private well owners to address nitrate contamination in drinking water wells. Wisconsin Public Radio is reporting that the measure would have the Department of Natural Resources prioritize grant awards to well owners with high nitrate levels. The state's Groundwater Coordinating Council annual report has said that nitrates are the state's most widespread contaminant, with 10% of private wells exceeding the federal limits for nitrates. The chemicals have been associated with blue baby syndrome, colon cancer, and birth defects. The bill is one of many proposed by Water Quality Task Force, assembled by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Additionally, it has support from over 20 farm and conservation groups. Three organizations have been awarded $10 million for construction of opioid recovery centers. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services has presented Arbor Place and Meta House with $1.9 million each, with the remaining amount going to Lighthouse Recovery Center, according to a press release from DHS. The one-time grant will cover construction costs for centers in Manitowoc, Menominee, and Glendale. The funds were awarded as a part of a settlement between the Wisconsin Department of Justice and pharmaceutical companies to resolve legal claims that the company's actions fueled opioid overdoses and deaths. DHS is scheduled to receive over $100 million over 18 years from the agreement. The centers are expected to start opening in 2024. A proposal to close two Energizer battery plants in Wisconsin has Senator Tammy Baldwin calling on the Federal Trade Commission to justify its approval of a 2018 merger involving the company. In addition to the closures, which could result in a loss of 600 jobs, Baldwin observes that Energizer Holdings' acquisition of Spectrum Brands, Railvac Division, has given the merged company control of 40% of the U.S. battery market. Energizer announced in June 2021 that it planned to raise prices across much of its North American product line. Baldwin says despite rising profit, sales, and cash flow, 
the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which represents workers at the factories in Portage and Fenimore, praised Baldwin's call for review of the merger. UW Hospital violated state law by charging a patient $110 to send her medical records electronically to her attorneys. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has ruled. Justin Brian Hagedorn joined the court's liberal faction in upholding, 4-3, a 2021 state appeals ruling, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. While a healthcare provider can charge for providing paper copies of medical records, it cannot charge for electronic transmission of those records, the appeals court found. And now on to today's top stories. While Tuesday's election for state Supreme Court was watched across the country, every single Madison City Council alder seat was on the ballot, and the newly reelected mayor will have a new batch of alders to work with later this month. Who won? Who lost? We'll check in with WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout for the results. There will be eight new faces when the Common Council meets for the first time since the election later this month. While all 20 alder seats were on the ballot on Tuesday, only 14 of those seats saw contested races. Last month, community members raised concerns about an outside group spending big money on a handful of alder candidates. The advocacy arm of the Realtors Association of South Central Wisconsin, or RASCW, spent almost $170,000 on mailers and robocalls for nine alder candidates. That money was not given directly to the candidates and instead was spent on their behalf. All nine candidates supported by RASCW told WORT that they condemned the large influx of outside cash on a local election. In the end, that spending seemed to have little sway over the final results. Five candidates supported by RASCW, Derek Field in District 3, Charles Miadze in District 18, J.L. Curry in District 16, Nikki Conklin in District 9, and Mike Verveer in District 4, won their election Tuesday. Four RASCW-supported candidates, Davy Mayer in District 6, Julia Matthews in District 12, John Uguerre in District 19, and Brad Hinkfuss in District 15, lost their election. One of those candidates, Brad Hinkfuss, was in one of two extremely tight races here in Madison. Hinkfuss lost to Dina Nina Martinez Rutherford by only 55 votes, or around 0.8%. Races with a margin of less than 1% are eligible for a recount under state law, but Hinkfuss says that even if the race is close, he has faith in local election leaders and has no intention of asking for a recount. I don't think it's the right thing to cast doubt on on election results just because you're the loser or just because it's somewhat close. I mean, we've got a recent history of that nationally and to some degree at the state level, and to me that's not healthy. I can't. I'm not going to automatically take a position of there must be something wrong just because I came out on the losing end. Um, I've got a lot of faith in the integrity of our local elections, the officials who run them, um, and everything else. If Hinkfuss had asked for a recount, he would have had to pay for it himself. Martinez Rutherford, meanwhile, has now been elected as the first openly trans woman in Madison's history. And according to the LGBTQ Victory Institute, a national group dedicated to elevating openly LGBTQ elected officials, Martinez Rutherford is currently the only openly trans woman serving in the state of Wisconsin. She says that, although she's already faced some hateful emails for her gender identity, she's honored to represent the district. Trying to stay grounded and I know that the people who voted for me are in my corner. I 
through most of it, I felt so much support and have felt cared for throughout the whole campaign. And now it's time to get to work and get stuff done. Martinez Rutherford says that she has already received some email threats, which she has sent to the Madison Police Department. Dina Nina Martinez Rutherford will appear on the 8 o'clock buzz tomorrow morning. Another race is still too close to call. In District 14, Noah Lieberman beat out Isidore Knox Jr. by just two votes. To further complicate matters, the city issued two provisional ballots in District 14 on Tuesday. Those ballots need to be turned into the city clerk's office by 4 p.m. tomorrow and could have major sway if both ballots are returned and vote for Knox. If the race were to become exactly tied, the race would be decided by any game of chance, like a coin toss, according to city attorney Mike Haas. No matter what happens with those provisional ballots, the race would still qualify for a recount if either candidate were to request one. In Wisconsin, close races with a margin of less than 0.25 percent are free. City Attorney Mike Haas says that these results are still unofficial and won't be finalized until the Board of Canvassers meet on Friday. Haas says that at that meeting, the results could further change. There may be other ballots besides these two provisional ballots that the Canvas Board says either should not be counted or should be counted. So the tally could change for other reasons as well. I'll give you one example. I think last fall after the general election, the canvas board, I believe they counted some absentee ballots that had been rejected at the polling place. And I I think it had to do with like witness addresses and whether or not the addresses were sufficient. And so it is possible that there may be other ballots that come into play other than the two provisional ballots. Lieberman told WORT yesterday that though he currently has the most votes days after the election, he isn't ready to declare victory. I want to make sure that all of the provisional ballots are counted, that everybody has a chance to have their voice heard before officially declaring it. But I am uh, hopeful that the result that we have right now where I've been elected will hold. Isidore Knox Jr. did not respond to multiple requests for comment by airtime. If either candidate wants to request a recount, they have until next Wednesday to submit the proper paperwork. In other races across the city, two sitting alders lost their races on Tuesday. In both cases, those alders faced other sitting alders, running in the same district due to redistricting. In District 10, incumbent Alder Jeanette Figueroa Cole defeated current District 14 Alder Sherry Carter by just 82 votes. Carter, who has sat on the council since 2015, did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime. In District 20, incumbent Alder Matt Fair lost his election to Barbara Harrington McKinney, who's represented District 1 since 2015. Fair, who was appointed to the position in June last year, says that though he's disappointed in the result, he's proud of how he ran his campaign. It was was difficult in the sense that, you know, that's not how you want things to go. You wouldn't want to run against a colleague, you know, if you dreamt it up the way you wanted it. Right. So I think both of us knew it was going to be a challenge and weren't super comfortable with it, but it is it was what it was. The Board of Canvassers will meet at 4 p.m. tomorrow to certify the results of the election. The newly elected alders will be sworn in at the next Common Council meeting on April 18th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. A local hiker, Emily Burdett, is planning to backpack the Pacific Crest Trail this summer. And along the way, she hopes to raise money for the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault. 
This serves her mission to empower women and non-binary people to venture into the wilderness with confidence. WORT news reporter Faye Parks conducted the interview. This coming summer, local hiker Emily Burdett plans to backpack the Pacific Crest Trail, which famously spans from Southern California to British Columbia. And her solo trip is more than just an impressive personal accomplishment. For each of the roughly 2,650 miles of trail, she hopes to raise $1 for the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault. In her words, quote, Hiking solo as a woman or a non-binary person is inherently more dangerous than hiking solo as a man. My mission is to empower solo women and non-binary adventurers to explore their own outdoor trips while fully acknowledging the risks we face, unquote. To learn more about her plans and her work with the coalition, I'm now joined by Emily Burdett. Thank you for agreeing to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. What inspired you to plan your upcoming trek? I first decided that I was going to do the Pacific Crest Trail. When I first found out that National Scenic Trails were even a thing, I was shocked to know that in this world where we have so many cities, roads, all of that, that we could create or that we had trails that went for thousands of miles or hundreds of miles. And while we might have some road crossings in there and all that, I just thought that it sounded like the most backcountry sort of away from people, almost quote unquote off the grid experience that you could have in today's world. And after hearing about the Pacific Crest Trail, I immediately was like, I've got to do that. Can I ask what led you to fundraise for the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault? Yeah, I think that hiking on this trail as a solo woman uh, really ties in well with the fundraiser that I'm doing. Assault itself is something that's pretty black and white, right? Somebody wanted that or they didn't. But what assault looks like can vary in so many ways. And it, it makes me really, really mad. That is something that we have to talk about. It, it, I'm infuriated, actually, that we have to live in a world where people, based on their sex or gender, automatically face this type of challenge in their life. I think assault is something that is an act of stealing somebody else's power. It's stealing somebody's control over another person's body. And we can never take back what somebody has done to our body, right? But I think that we do have the power and in a way the upper hand in that we don't have to be silent about what's happened. So talking about assault and talking about the issues within assault, I think is incredibly empowering. And I believe it can help put an end to assaults in the future. And so that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to talk about sexual assault, just like we're doing right now in this conversation, to acknowledge the impact that it can have on a person. And again, going back to my mission, saying that I, I realize that I face a higher risk of being assaulted, as do other people, as do other solo women and non-binary hikers or outdoor explorers. But that's not going to stop us from doing the things that we love. Would you mind advising our listeners on some of the precautions that you take while you're hiking? Absolutely. 
I think there are a few different types of precautions uh, that we can take one or some just a bit more immediate right in the moment and others just generally to have in the back of our minds as we're, we're hiking or doing whatever it is we're, we're doing in the outdoors. I think more immediately, which is probably what comes to people's minds most in the moment if something is happening right then and there. I'll be carrying a Garmin InReach, which is an SOS emergency device. And quite frankly, I'll also be carrying a canister of bear spray. Uh, while it's for the bears, it's also for in case anybody tries to attack me. Uh, that's not something that I would feel apologetic about or bad about. Um, I think what they'd be trying to do would be far worse than getting some pepper spray in your eyes. On a more general level, thinking about uh, how to protect myself, just having a few ways to respond to certain conversations or certain situations, I think is really helpful as well. So things that people might say to you that wouldn't mean to come across as predatory, uh, but might be, so things like, oh, are you really by yourself right now? Or, oh, where are you camping tonight? Or, you know what, you're by yourself, I'll just walk with you to protect you from other people. Or, uh, wh where are the other people you're hiking with? Just those kinds of things that could be really sincere, genuine, friendly questions uh, could also be predatory. And so just having an answer to those, whether that's, oh, my boyfriend is just a mile behind me, I'm hiking a bit ahead of him, or I'm not sure where I'm camping yet, or just simply I don't want to answer that question, um, are all what I think are very fair responses and things that are good to keep in mind when you're hiking. Also thinking about where you're setting up a tent, or if somebody is setting up a tent um, really close to you, or in a place that makes you feel uncomfortable, just being ready to maybe pack up and leave if you don't feel like something's right, or if you're just simply uncomfortable in that situation. Do you have a support team following along with you that you're in contact with? Like, how do you plan to resupply along your way? My support team, so to speak, would be my partner back home in Madison, and my family, my parents. I think just to have emotional support with my my parents, my friends, all of that, being able to keep in touch with them via text message or phone call every now and then is something I definitely prioritize when, of course, I have cell service. And then also with my partner, um, they'll be sending out resupply boxes to me as needed. But what's sort of interesting about the Pacific Crest Trail in comparison to the other one I did before is that there's so many trail towns that there's a lot of opportunity to resupply along the way. Or even if I just need to take a break and have a hot shower and a hotel room, there's a lot more opportunities for that to just sort of hike a bit off trail than there would be on the, the other hike I did or some other um, outdoor experiences. So I'm lucky with that, that there's quite a few trail towns to resupply in, but I will have somebody at home as well who's able to send me boxes as needed. You know, it's been reported that the Sierras have been hit with record snowfall this winter, which may make conditions challenging. Has this factored into your plans at all? It absolutely has. 
the snowfall is something that I'm pretty nervous about, uh, but it's something that I'm planning for, which I think is really important when it comes to doing these adventures, right? So we talked about preparing for different types of uncomfortable situations or dangerous situations. And part of that is not just the people on the trail, right? It's also about just, it's, you're out in the woods, you're out in the mountains. And so you have to think about just the weather that's out there. And yes, a big part of that is the snow this year. And so going through the Sierras and through those really snowy areas, I will either be taking it one step at a time or possibly flip-flopping, which is a term that just means hiking up to the point that you can hike to and then skipping the area you can't, maybe finishing the trail and then coming back down when it's safer to do so. So you see flip-flopping a lot when it comes to forest fires, uh, to things like mudslides, snow, all those kinds of maybe natural disasters or big weather obstacles. Do you have an idea of how long it will take you, like starting in the summer, how many months? So I'll be starting on the trail April 14th, which I'm very excited about. That's when my permit starts. And then I will probably be hiking around through the end of August or so. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? There is a GoFundMe. I would encourage people to go check it out. If you just go to GoFundMe.com and search walking 2,650 miles to help survivors of assault, you'll find it there. And you can also check out my Instagram or Facebook page, which is called Emily Explores, or on Instagram, that's underscore Emily underscore Explores, and you'll be able to find a link to it there. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Emily Burdett, a solo hiker who plans to travel the length of the Pacific Crest Trail. With each mile, she hopes to raise money for the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault and inspire women and non-binary people to explore the wilderness. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Last month, the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association announced that the WORT Local News won five awards in their annual Awards for Excellence. One of those winners was Ada D-Box, and tonight we'll re-air that award-winning segment. Host D-Star spoke with Palletpreneur's owner, Jay Ball, about how he went from foster care to prison to businessman. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, and you're listening to Out of the Box. we got a special guest today. Going on? My name is Jay Ball. For the people that don't know you, can you give us a little bit about your background and where you come from? And I was an uh, 82 baby. I was born in that era crack era as is known so it's like my whole family they just took a hit the whole 80 so i was just basically born into everything that kids shouldn't grow around around so it's like just humble park area in that time it was just what kind of things did you have to overcome coming up as a kid had to overcome family and that's the biggest one for me because it was like my family were the ones that were bringing me down i don't know if that makes sense to a lot of people but it's like my family is how i was getting in trouble that was basically the biggest thing for me my whole life is just always trying to get over family. Let's go back. Chicago, Illinois, Humble Park. Was it just you or do you got brothers and sisters? Or? It was brothers and sisters, like 
four baby mamas my dad had. Wow. My dad died when I was, what, five? Mm-hmm. He died uh, when I was in Puerto Rico on our way over here. He was about to, you know, get an apartment, you know, get everything together for us to come over. But then he had a baby mama in um, Philadelphia, so he took off over there. And a couple of weeks before we were coming out here, he had got murdered out there. Did you know him? Boom, but our five-year-old can remember, you know, after 20-something odd years, it's like, it's harder. Without a picture, it's hard to remember too much, you know? So it's like, he was at a young age, so it's like, I remember his image, but I don't remember, like, actual voice. voices, yeah. you know, conversations, anything like that. So you grew up with... Mama, granny. No, I grew auntie. up with my um. I grew up with my grandma. I grew up with a uh, with a bunch of beehives, which is old ladies. Right. I grew up with two of them. Okay, they were already past the age of sixty. They were oh, already wow. in their sixties. You know what I mean? So it's like I I slept on the floor. I slept in the living room floor, and that's why I slept there for years on a little little mattress pad that they had for me with a little pillow and a blanket. Not only that, you are being raised in uh old school rules. Very tough. Very very strict. Like, it's a strict environment. My grandma had me on a regimen. She had me doing stuff that a six-year-old ain't supposed to be doing. But it's like, that was her way of just teaching me how to grow up, her way. She's like, yeah. I can't teach you how to be a man. It's like, oh, I could teach you what I know. So when did you start having trouble with the law? Well, it's after getting older and finding out what really happened with my dad. At some point, you know, I was told that um, my dad had got killed by his own mob. And right away, I was in that culture. My whole family were like, so it's like once me hearing that, that that was possibly why he got killed, I no longer wanted to be around it because I right. felt like some type of betrayal, you know what I mean? But I just always been the type of individual is like, no one else is going to be my mom. Right. No one else is going to be my dad. So my other brothers and sisters, they got in tune with it. They call in my aunts and uncles, mom and dad and stuff like that. And I just never wanted a part of that. So that right away, I always had me like, you know, they already gave me the little black sheep look. Right. Like I'm not the only one co- cooperating with it. So after just acting out and acting out, I got picked up by DCFS and, and that was started the whole journey for me. Basically it was that moment, 10 years old. So you ended up in the system. Yeah. I ended up in the system. Uh, the funny thing is one of the reasons I ended up in the system is that my family had, um, they wanted an SSI check. So they basically had me and my brother on down under mentally retarded. So it's like, I'm far from that. And there's nothing wrong with anybody that has mental issues, but you know, at the time, you know, I was just like, what? So just based off that alone, it just opened a, a door of things. Since the guy's not in his right mind, his grandma can't take care of him. I just became a ward of the state. They sent me wherever they can put me at. It was a, a mental hospital, group homes, counties, just secluded, always moving, shuffling around from state to state. So you end up going to prison. Well, prison, <sighs> the juvenile just in Roosevelt Street in Chicago, just the Audi home. That was like a prison in itself. Right. Just going there, you already got a taste of what it is. And if you been through that and you get a little older, it's just like, it's basically the same foundation. They treating us just like grown people in there. You get out of the Audi home. So what did you end up going to adult prison for? Cocaine. That's what I sold. And I was like, that was it. That was the 90s. That was it for Humble Park. It was big on, every section had their little thing going on. The West Side was known for the heroin and stuff like that. Humble Park, we mostly sold rocks. You know, a lot of dudes in the South Side, they did wiki stick. You know, everybody did their thing. At 17, you get popped, right? And they so they start giving you big time and charging you as an adult or what happened? Well, I sat in Cook County for about a year and a half. Like, I fought the crap out of it. So right away, it's like they gave me with the 16. I sat it out and I brought it down. And I still ended up doing, what, seven years out of it. So what were some of the things that you had to overcome in prison? 
In prison, it was um, showmanship, trying to show off. So it was either I was fighting or I was getting messed up every week for at least a month straight. And that was basically my first month. So you come home after doing the seven. What made you want to change your life? When I was in it, I came home and I got presented with work. This was some family. I tried to get a job through a temp. I did that for like a month. But this time I just kept lying to myself, talking about I'm just going to do a little bit smarter this time. Going to just chill. Like it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it never does. It didn't work. So you get out off of that. Um, what made you want to change things? I didn't. You still didn't. I went back for the third time over um, threatening the public official. I got into it with a off-duty cop. We got into an argument. It got heated. He called the police and made his statement and said that I threatened him. And, you know, they did what they did. It was in Joliet. They over there, they all basically testified against me, at least four officers. So they still gave me three years for that due to my record. So then I got out again after doing uh, almost a year on that. And then I had called a home invasion. It's like I was on a roll. I had no kids. Nobody wrote me. Nobody sent me money. Every time I went in, it was just me. Right. Like, I'm just going to keep going here until the wheels fall off. You know, and the turning point was because I just recently did a bid. Just three years ago, I had got out. I got off papers here in Wisconsin. But that was something that happened here in Madison with a family member. But that's when I had decided to stop. But the turning point for me was when um, my girl, she told me she was pregnant. And she told me that she was going to have the baby. And, and that right there was the turning point. So you went through that transformation. You come home. You got a baby on the way. Or, or did was the baby The baby born? was right when I was going to get sentenced. Oh, so you missed that. So she told me, is either you go to the joint or you see your firstborn. And I was like, I'm going to see my firstborn. But we made the decision. And I told her, yeah, I'm going to go on the run. You know, I can get caught today, tomorrow, two hours from now, a month from now. That lasted about, what, three years. I even had a, a second child at that time. Wow. During that time on the run. He said, but I ran for about three years until, you know, Wisconsin caught up with me. So when you did get popped, how much time did they hit you with? I ended up doing two. They gave me two and they made me do the whole two. And there's one thing about the Wisconsin prison system. They have a lot of things. They give you a lot of freedom as far as you trying to learn. And they got a pretty good extensive looking libraries in most of these joints. Anything that they had available, I was just doing it. it was, you know, I, I told myself that this time around, it was the hardest because of my kids. So it's like, it's either this is it. This is what I've been waiting for for three years. And it wasn't even over with. It's like, man, I still got to do the time, get out and do the parole with it too. So overall, that was still like 10 years of just invested into one situation. But it was, uh, it was a good outcome. It was the best bit I had because I actually had something to look forward to, something to miss, something to consider. I had built stuff. I started, you know, building, going on the run. I, every step from there was calculated. Like, I, right, I've been out a year. I wasn't expecting this. So it's like, cool, from here on, I just go to work. That was Out of the Box host D-Star in his now award-winning conversation with Jay Ball. You can listen to the full interview on the Out of the Box podcast find, found wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The House Always Wins, carpentry educators and below-grade go-getters, Allie and John, discuss basement finishing do's and don'ts. I call it housework. Woo! Hey everybody, I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, a place where you can learn cool stuff about your house. I love cool stuff. 
Hey, Ellie, uh, how about we head down to the cellar, the basement this week, and talk about that? What do you say? Down to the subterranean fun cave, our Florida-dwelling friends only dream of. Oh, it's true. Wisconsin basements for watching the game, hanging out with your high school buddies, not doing anything untoward, of course. Oh, naturally not. So just this week, I was in class uh, discussing different types of insulation in my building science uh, class, and a student pulled me aside after and we had a detailed 20-minute conversation about how to properly insulate the basement in preparation for finishing it. And I'll admit, every time I get this question, which is a lot, <laughs> my, first an- my first thought is, why would you want to hang out in your basement? I know. It's right. It typically, they're cold and damp and moldy and maybe don't have any windows. And it's like, if it is done right, it can give you a lot of extra space. Uh, my basement is finished with a, a game room, a TV area, has a bedroom and a full bath. It's cozy. Uh, it's nice dry space and we use it and we love it. it. It works out pretty well. You do have a nice basement. So how can we help our listeners transform their basements into more inviting spaces? Definitely. So how do you turn it from that dark, damp, dungeon-y sort of place into this cool light thing? A, a great question. So start by asking yourself three questions. Uh, Number one, is there enough headroom? That means when you walk down there, how close is your head to the ceiling? Is it seven feet? Is it eight foot? Is there a ton of duct work? You know, what's going on in there? If there's enough headroom, you know, you feel comfortable on there. That's one of the most important things because quite frankly, if there's not enough headroom, that's a tough one to overcome. Yeah. Now, I know this is not a visual medium, but you're a tall. I am. I am not. It's true. So plenty of headroom is kind of it's not a subjective thing. That's true. Good point. Good point. You're, you're right. I, I, that makes a ton of sense. The second question, is it dry down there? If you regularly have standing water and springs, you definitely need to solve that problem before continuing. And if you have standing water, you have a bigger water issues there, definitely refer to our previous show where we did talk about how to handle uh, water issues in your basement. The next question is, is your basement creepy? Ugh, mine is. For sure, creepy. Right. Only you can answer that. Do you have the creepy basement? But you can transform that, right? Yeah. So if you have adequate headroom, mm-hmm. you don't have standing water as, a, as an ongoing issue, and you've decided that your basement is not creepy, then you can start planning your finished basement. And if, if I'm working with a client talking about finishing their basement, um, I kind of have two guiding principles that that I lean on. The the first is we're going to use materials that are moisture tolerant because even basements without standing water tend to be damp and a bit cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second guiding principle is I want to I want to insulate those cool surfaces like your foundation walls because uh, they're just unpleasant to be near. They're, right. So basement walls are are made of concrete for the most part. So when we're dealing with those basement walls, the foundation walls, we want to manage that moisture because it's just, it is just there. And so the first thing I'd I'd take on is sealing any cracks with uh, a high quality caulking product. Then you might, um, you don't have to, but you might paint the entire interior surface of that foundation wall with a, with a, a paint, like a dry lock, brand paint that is acts as a vapor barrier basically and then the next thing i do is is take on the insulation and there's a lot of wrong ways to do it but uh, mm-hmm. i i think uh, i've had the most success with gluing rigid foam insulation to the foundation walls 
two inches of uh, what's called XPS foam board, which is typically it's sold in four foot by eight foot sheets. Glue that to the walls using a construction adhesive that's rated for foam. Right. They're not all. And then I'll tape the seams with a uh, high quality tape, like a Tyvek tape or something like that. Right. So basically you've handled the insulation and warmth issue and a moisture issue right there, right at the wall. At that point, then you can, you want to build out the studs. So typical finishes in a basement wall are going to be probably drywall. And you're going to probably want to run some electrical in there. Um, so having a stud wall in there is a good way to go. And we've found that uh, steel studs actually are an excellent uh, way to, to build the walls. And you just build it right in front of the foam. Maybe you leave a little half inch gap and then the steel studs. And you can get them in, what, the two and a half inch width. Um, and it goes together pretty easily. It's easy to carry down, easy to handle. Really is quite a winner. And the steel studs are galvanized, so they don't, they won't rot. They won't turn black with mold and mildew. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, but you can, <laughs> if you want to use wood, you're more comfortable using wood, you can do that. The only caution I would, I would make is that any wood that's in contact with concrete needs to be pressure treated. Mm-hmm. That, and then any fasteners you use similarly need to be rated specifically for use in pressure treated lumber. Um, so we've talked about those outside walls. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit just about what the floor finishes uh, that might might work well in a basement and which ones you should avoid. Oh, for sure. Well, I'll start with what not to use. Uh, and my favorite not to use in a basement is wood flooring. People are like, oh, let's put wood flooring down there. And, uh, and no, uh, and oh, no. So wood is a bad idea. Carpet also can be problematic because it holds moisture. It holds smells. It doesn't do a good job of giving you that clean, nice-smelling space. What should you use? You can use tile, uh, ceramic or vinyl or vinyl composition tile, like the thin 12x12s. All are excellent choices. If you're looking more for a sustainable and green product, there's cork products that can be installed in basements. One of the things you should do is look at the product and make sure that it is okay to use in a basement situation. Any other advice? Yeah, definitely. If you're Putting a bedroom down in the basement so somebody's going to be sleeping down there, that room has to have an egress window. And that egress window is there for the escape in case of a fire. And whatever you do, whatever you're planning, definitely make sure that your local municipality, wherever that is, is aware of it and you do pull a building permit. Well, John, that's all we have time for today. It's true. So if you have a question uh, about carpentry or home improvement, not you, John, don't, right, don't, don't even ask me. Well, I just but ask you. But a few but. out there do. Uh, then send us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. I call it housework. Because it's light work. I'm with those sheets. Filling the base to my feet. Hurt. I call it housework. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Walking into the Handmade in America Contemporary Custom Footwear exhibit in Nancy Nicholas Hall and seeing a shoemaking shop may be as unexpected as how Amara Hank Weber got her start creating custom footwear. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, curator and custom shoemaker Hart Weber, Hark Weber tells contributor Jennifer Fields about how she got her start with shoes. 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 Oh my God. Shoes. Let's get some shoes. It was so fun to walk into the space today because 
it's exactly my workshop, but it's way bigger. <laughs> but I spend a lot of time sitting here. Um, all of my tools are on the board. There's some shoes that are in progress on the table. I still haven't finished those red ones. They're waiting for me when I get home. But yeah, these are my tools. And this is, a, this is like a little spot where I spend a lot of time working. Talk to me about the process of making shoes because some of the tools look familiar. If you were to give me a kit mm -hmm. and from that kit I was to make a pair of shoes, what yeah. would be in there? Well, you know, if you went to like a, a hardware store, you could probably find the things you would need to make a pretty basic pair of shoes. So you need a hammer, uh, a pincers or like a, a needle nose pliers is what I started when I was making my first shoes was like just a needle nose pliers, a hammer, knives or scissors and that's pretty much the basic stuff a tack puller glue but all of these tools that you see on the board those are kind of more specialty things that are used for doing edge finishing and you can see i have like a lot of hammers they all have different faces different like domed faces they're french hammers so they're like different curves on the back end so there are a lot of tools that look really familiar but we use them in slightly different ways a lot of really sharp knives is really important. It's all things that you might recognize or that are similar if you've made books. Um, there's a lot of crossover. So yeah, it's nothing that's too unfamiliar. It's really how they're used and, and the knowledge, the visceral knowledge in your body is, is what, what the, where it is. So I also see patterns. So sort of walk me through the process. Yeah. I come in, I want to fly a pair of shoes, square yeah. toe, because for some reason, last night, mm -hmm. I literally woke up thought, oh, man, I want a pair of square toe boots. Well, you can make it happen. All right. So walk yeah. me through the process. Okay. Well, I should preface this by saying every shoe and boot maker will do it a little bit differently. So I can speak for myself, and, and there's like a generality to it, but everyone's going to do it a little bit differently. But so, are, the tools, yeah. Amara, are yeah. the tools the same tools in the same process yeah. as in the beginning? And it's just personal preference as to how you kind use of, them yeah yeah and also like what you're used to so yeah if i go to somebody else's shop it's really hard for me to use their knives because they're sharpened at a slightly different bevel than how i sharpen them and we use very very sharp knives for example or the like the dome on the hammer might be a little bit different and like if it's too curved it can leave a divot if it's too flat it can leave like a little mark on the edge so knowing your tool like your tools just become an extension of your body and these ones are definitely my tools and walking into somebody else's shop would be hard for me to use their tools without doing a little practice first but yeah walking into the shop so a client comes uh, we talk about what they want square toes for example or whatever and I measure their feet and we look at leathers and we talk about the style I do a really rough I'm really terrible at drawing and I do a really terrible sketch and amazingly people trust me and well look uh, at the end product I mean come on you know all of the good ones walk away I have to say the best work walks out the door <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah Anyhow, so that's what happens with the client. So the, the planning process can be intense, and then I build a fit model for them to kind of try on because they're all made for specific anatomy. And it's complicated, like to make a shoe stick on your foot is, you know, you have to do different man manipulations and stuff. So I make a little model for you to come and try on. You come back, try it on, make a little adjustments, and then I build the shoes. About how long does it take you to build a shoe? How long would it take you to build a shoe as opposed to a boot? Is there that big of a time difference? Well, 
cowboy boot making and shoe making are really different processes. It's a different order of operations kind of, and it's just a different patterning technique. And so there is a rift between cowboy boots and shoes only because it's hard to do them both because it's a different patterning. You're, you mentioned the patterns, it's a different patterning situation. You know, most shoe and boot makers, however, will spend between 40 and 100 hours on a pair of, of, of footwear. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah, it takes a long time. It's, it's, it's kind of surprising. You can see it, though. You can see how long it must take because it's, if, even from a distance, mm -hmm. I can look at this green pair of shoes, which I really, really like. <laughs> I can look at this green pair of shoes, mm -hmm. and A, it looks like magic, which tells me that it's a difficult process and mm -hmm. takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. But the precision in the in the making of the shoe and, and making decisions, especially when you're working with a the client, mm -hmm. are you working not only with them in their physical needs, but also like their emotional needs? Oh, yeah, totally. So yeah. sort of walk me through yeah. that, because I think that I would be a terrible client and they're like, yeah, 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 it fits. Just get it. Like, I would be so excited to get it done that I don't even know if I would tell you if it was pinching you know, my little baby toe. You yeah, know what I mean? If you, know, if you like how it looks, it's amazing how good it feels. <laughs> and like, if you don't like how it looks, it does not feel good at all. Yeah, completely. <laughs> yeah, so it's, that's an added incentive to put that shine on, you know, that final shine. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, it's, it's pretty astounding. Yeah. Um, yeah, but every client is totally different. So I've had people come in and they just sit down and start crying mm -hmm. because it's really vulnerable. Some people have never shown their foot to, pe to someone before because they feel like they're ugly. They're, they feel self-conscious of their body. They, they're not touched, you know. Um, and some people come in and they are wearing really fancy shoes and they want more really fancy shoes. And that's my job, you know. And so it really, it you never know exactly who's going to come to the door. Um, because I just correspond by with people by email, and you never know what's going to happen once the fitting starts. And so, um, yeah, it just it really varies, and I try to just be present with who I'm with because I don't know, like I don't have an agenda, and I don't want to sell shoes. Um, I want to build something that is meaningful to someone, and and that you know that's the important part for me. It's like I have no interest in selling. I have you know plenty of clients. So. <laughs> I'm not going to try to like upsell anybody something. I want to build something that is, that will be meaningful for them for a long time because the shoes last forever. It's a it's a necessity for most, mm -hmm. but the need, the desire, the emotional attachment, the mm -hmm. desire outstrips like the actual need for. Sure. Like yeah. in you, any shoe that fits you, you could wear and do about uh, it. But who would want any shoe that fit them? You know, I'll never forget on my graduate, like my defense committee, there was somebody who was like, he just could not wrap his, like everyone was like talking about the story and about this and the emotions of shoes and talking about footwear as metaphor and footwear as, and this guy was like, yeah, it's just shoes. Like, I, like, whatever, it's just shoes. Like who, and, and I actually kind of appreciated that. At first I was like, who is this joker? But then I, I, I looked at him, he was like short squat, short pants, running shoes, just like nothing beautiful maybe. I don't know what to say about what he was wearing. It was completely utilitarian and it's almost like anti-aesthetic. And I thought, you know, that too is the statement, you know? And so I, you know, it, it, it reminded me that like not everyone is going to have the same parameter or be drawn to the stuff in the same way that I am or see the same things that I do or that I wish to present. And that is fine, you know. And not everybody shares your story. It seems to me from our conversation that your journey with shoemaking really came from a place of uncertainty and necessity in the sense of 
I can do this, so I'm going to do this, to now it's a choice. And now you have, you, you're reaping, I'm going to say reaping all this wonderful, all these wonderful awards because of this, this place she was sort of forced into. Sure. I, well, I've been really lucky. I, I will have to say, like, I, I do work hard, but I've also been very lucky. And um, one of the things that's been really special about this show is to bring people together whose work I really admire all into one place. Because everyone, everyone comes to this profession from very, very different places, whether that's emotional places, physical places, economic places. There's just every, everyone's coming from a different spot. And we're all on this kind of similar path that's very different from most people's job, even other craftsmen. You know, being a shoemaker is a particular thing, just like every craftsman has a you know, particular kind of stuff that go with that job. And so it's been really wonderful to see all this work together and also to, um, to talk to some of these other shoemakers about what they are, you know, like how they got here. It's been really great, yeah. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter this evening was Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors D-Star, John Stephanie and Ali Barini, and Jonifer Fields. Nate Carlin engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhow produced this newscast. And Miss Sholly Pippen is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to subscribe to The Local News wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is The Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.